Welcome to Code Together, a podcast for developers by developers, where we discuss technology and trends in industry. I'm your host, Tony Monkolspine. Over the last couple of decades, the world of computer graphics has been growing at an amazing rate. From animated movies to video games, we consumers are lucky enough to reap the benefits of these technological advances. Of course, as the experiences get better, the expectations also go up. One of the latest algorithmic advances in rendering is path guiding. Today we are going to learn about path guiding and how you can take advantage of this cool technology. To that end, we are joined by two developers who have been working on bringing path guiding to the Chaos V-Ray renderer through integration of the Intel Open Path Guiding Library, or OpenPGL. Dia Nikolov has worked on multiple render engines at Chaos, including V-Ray. He has worked on features like progressive caustics, tune material, and various V-Ray GPU and Vantage features. Of course, one of his latest works is integrating Intel OpenPGL into V-Ray. Welcome to the podcast, Dian. Hey. We are also joined by Sebastian Herholtz, who is a ray tracing engineer at Intel who works on the rendering kernels library team. He's been interested in computer graphics for two decades and is the main developer and project lead for the Intel OpenPGL path guiding library. He has worked to integrate path guiding into large, well-known projects, including Blender and now, of course, Chaos V-Ray. Welcome to the bat. Ah, welcome to the podcast, Sebastian. <laughs> welcome, Toby. Thanks for being here. <laughs> All right. So I am very much not uh, an expert in rendering. Uh, it's probably true about most of the things that we have on this podcast. I am not an expert, but fortunately, I have both of you guys today. So many people have heard about things like ray tracing. Uh, probably fewer have heard about path tracing. So Sebastian, can you talk to us and describe to us what path tracing is? Yeah, sure. Um, so path tracing is um, a rendering algorithm for physically based uh, rendering. So which tries to simulate like the real physically based light transport in a scene. So when you want to render a scene like a synthetic scene description of a game or in movies, and you want to make it look like physically correct or plausible, like this is a rendering algorithm you can use. And what it does is um, it shoots uh, paths, like random paths in, in the scene, like from the camera. And each uh, of these paths starts as a pixel. And these paths then explore the scene to explore the light uh, transport and the light distribution of this scene and to try to collect all the light which actually contribute to each pixel. So each of these paths actually estimates the final pixel color. And because it, this estimation can be good or bad, you need a lot of these estimates to average them to get the final pixel value. And um, like these errors you have in these estimates is something we can we see in noise in these rendered images. And the more samples you pick and take, the better um, your like this noise goes away and your estimate and your rendering converges to the real noise-free image. The big problem here is how does a path tracer make the decision to explore the scenes to collect all the light? And what this path tracer can do is it hits like a surface and then makes a random decision where to go next to explore the scene. 
One shortcoming of these path tracers is that usually you do not have like any information about the complete indirect light distribution of the scene because this is actually what the path tracer tries to solve. It tries to calculate this light distribution, but you don't have it. So the only thing a path tracer usually does is when making a new decision for a direction is looking at the local information it has, which is the material at the current intersection point. And then it looks at the scattering distribution of this material and shoots a ray and continues the path in a direction where if light would come from this direction, the material would scatter a lot of light towards the camera. And this is how a path usually constructs. A path tracer constructs uh, these paths to exploring the scenes. This works quite well when you have not huge variations in the indirect light uh, distribution. So there you, you actually get uh, can render nice images with few amounts of samples. But these algorithms really struggle as soon as you have complex indirect light situations, such as caustics or really multi-bound uh, diffuse light. And this is where algorithms like path guiding can help you. But probably this is something we continue talking later a little bit in more details. For the person who doesn't think about this all the time, I'll come with a, the direction of somebody who looks at this kind of mostly in games or in movies. When I look at what is being rendered, what, we, what you're saying is that path tracing, path guiding helps us with understanding how much light is in each part of the scene. Because really, when I look around the room, for instance, that I'm in right now, certain parts of the scene are brighter or darker. And through path tracing, it helps me understand as light reflects off various different surfaces, the illumination will change in different parts of the room. And what path tracing does is help me get a more accurate idea of how much light is in each part of my room. Just in some sense, right? By looking at how it bounces off different surfaces because that behaves differently? Yeah, this, this is how it works. Like you, so that's, this is what light does. It starts usually from your light source and then it bounces multiple times on all the surfaces until it at some point reaches your eye. And what path tracing tries to do is to reverse actually the, the path of light. And so what you usually try, for example, in games is to to use an approximation of the indirect light. So you have like some probes, which you rendered before, and then you try to use these probes to say, okay, this is the amount of indirect illumination I have here. And it looks plausible and, and good enough, but it's often not the real physically based correct uh, result you get. That's what brings us kind of to Dion and Chaos Vire. Dion, if you can explain what that is and why that's different than what I get when I'm playing a video game. Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. I like how Dion's uh, explanation started really simple. Like, yeah, we should uh, shoot some rays from from the the camera in the scene for each pixel, and then we estimate the the contribution. But then, <laughs> then the problem the problem starts start coming in. Like, uh, you don't know where the light comes from. You don't. You have. You only have local information and so on. And in theory, when you first first see the path uh, tracing algorithm, it's quite simple. But eventually, you realize that it, it's simple only if, if you are able to tra trace infinite amount of rays. At the moment, we are not even close to that. V-Ray, similarly to path tracers in the world, has this problem that it cannot trace 
an infinite amount of rays. So it has to be smart when choosing in which directions to trace rays. The latest thing that helps us is uh, Intel's library, OpenPGL. We can talk about it in detail. So Sebastian, when we are talking about how OpenPGL is helping, uh, in this particular case, uh, the Chaos V-Ray uh, renderer, what is the advantage of OpenPGL over traditional path tracing? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned before, what a path tracer usually does uh, to decide where, where to go next is just to look on a, for the local material and the reflection properties of this material, but it completely neglects or has no information about the incoming light at this point. So it could mean, yes, you have like a, a really glossy, shiny surface, which gives you like more a, a cone shape of reflection in one direction, but there's a super bright light spot or uh, light source or indirect light source not coming from this cone, meaning this is a direction you maybe should go, but because you don't have this information that there is actually some indirect light coming from another direction than this uh, primary cone of, of reflection, um, you have a low probability to actually exploring this direction, which increases the noise of your renderer. So the idea um, of path guiding is to say, during rendering, we try to learn an approximation of the indirect light field. And, do, and then we can use this approximation to actually guide the path tracer into directions which are important or have high contribution to your final image and can significantly reduce the noise of your renderer. Um, and this helps you that you get, uh, you need less samples to get to a noise-free image. And this then also helps you to uh, save some time in your renderings. Examples are like multi-bounce uh, diffused indirect illuminations, sometimes also some simpler caustics, like if you think about a pool um, with a water surface and you have some surface on the ground, and then usually you have like these nice caustics on the ground. And these are hard to sample by a standard path tracer because you have probably a diffused surface which reflects light in all directions, but the inner energy of the sun is bundled by the water surface to only one small or directional area of the surface. And shooting a ray in, in, in this specific area is pretty hard. And by learning um, these indirect directions in OpenPGL, we are able to tell the renderer, um, hey, explore this direction a little bit more often, something interesting is coming from there. Be smarter with the race, uh, with the ray directions, right? Yeah. And you mentioned the, the word caustics a couple of times. Um, and I, I think it'd be good to help people kind of understand if we're talking about tracing rays of light. So if I think about simple things like a wall, a flat wall, like I, I can easily say, hey, this, this wall is doing something. But a caustic is actually kind of a reflective surface for a refractive surface, right? It's as the light travels through something that is not necessarily straightforward. Usually the, the most common cases where when the light bounces to, from a highly reflective or, or refractive surface and then focuses on a, on a diffuse surface, then you see, then you see it like a bright, very bright spot or, or, a, or a very interesting bright pattern on the diffuse surface. 
Okay. So like, for example, in the real world, if I, if it reflected, like maybe through a piece of glass and then hit a table or something like that, it might come up with something interesting. Or like in my head, I think like, uh, maybe like a prism as light goes through a prism, I get kind of this diffuse, um, image. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or like a, a lens or a glass where through the curvature of, of the reflected, uh, refractive surface or reflective surface, like it actually bundled and focused to one specific point. And then this makes this, this, this one point or direction way more uh, important. We talked a little bit about chaos V-Ray, but, uh, you know, when people, I'll say again, me, <laughs> when me, when I think about things, um, in terms of rendering, I tend to think of things like video games, like, uh, the Unreal Engine in the old days, the Quake Engine, kind of these real-time video game type renderings. Um, and then I do think about movies a little bit, like the uh, animated movies that I see in the world. What is the difference between a product like the Chaos V-Ray render and something that I would see that is rendering, say, a video game? What's the difference between a production-level renderer versus like a video game rendering? We can talk about real-time rendering and, and and general offline rendering, the differences between the two. And then we can talk about uh, specific things in V-Ray. First of all, I want to mention that real-time rendering is, is very quickly catching up with the capabilities compared to offline rendering in many of the problematic situations. And the good thing about real-time rendering is that, that you can instantly see the result of your scene. You can instantly make changes. You can play around with it and stuff like this. With offline rendering, you have to wait for all of this from maybe several several seconds uh, to potentially uh, minutes or hours if your scene is very heavy. But yeah, all of these have trade-offs. But for example, real-time rendering has made very significant improvements in the recent years. For example, uh, it can now handle scenes with uh, very heavy geometry with tons of triangles for example in unreal engine 5 with with nanite another big problem is how to handle hundreds or thousands of lights in the scene uh, efficiently and this is also handled now in real time with resampled important sampling combined with the reservoir sampling this is called for example RTXDI. Real-time rendering also utilizes denoising algorithms and Intel also has a denoiser that that can work with very noisy images and to produce uh, very clean results similar to to what what you would expect from a few minutes or hours of brute force path tracing by an offline renderer. Another thing that real-time rendering struggles a lot with usually is uh, large resolutions for for example 4k or 8k render resolutions but but now we have upscaling and intel uh, excess and these are very significant improvements but there there are still areas where real-time rendering struggles a lot and as we, one of the things that we already talked about is caustics even if you use ray tracing or path tracing, you won't get very clean results. You have to be a lot smarter than that. And you can either 
figure out some kind of a hack that would work on specific types of scenes, or you can do what uh, an offline rendering would do and just trace uh, a lot of rays and try to find the caustic contribution correctly. Other problems for real-time rendering are realistic rendering of skin, um, of folk, for example, fog, smoke as well. Hair shading is problematic. You can have very complex materials that have very complex calculations. You can have procedural textures, stuff like this. The, these things are very heavy to compute. For all of these things, real-time rendering has some kind of workarounds, but, uh, but usually they break down in the scenarios or the scenes they are not intended to to work um, and it, it happens quite a lot on the other hand offline rendering can can handle all all of these effects so then it sounds like the the, the difference there is that with a, a real-time renderer there are corner cases that are just kind of ignored because the person who's building the engine recognizes that those corner cases may not be applicable for the usage of the renderer or they leave it up to the person who's using that render to make sure that those corner cases are handled in kind of a one-off way, whereas something like a Chaos V-Ray will actually render things without needing to cut these corners because it's less worried about making sure the frame hits the screen at the right time, but more about making sure the, the scene is accurately rendered. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's up to the, the user to try and find a way to work around the or to prepare their scene so so it it doesn't it doesn't break down with with these uh, features and so then going back to the open pgl sebastian can you talk a little bit about what makes up the path guiding library so my understanding is it's not something that intel's come up with from scratch where we've looked at it and said we understand rendering let's go find these solutions but uh, as my understanding is that it's kind of a, uh, what's the right word, amalgamation of best known methods. So can you talk a little bit about that and how we chose these to integrate into OpenPGL? You're right, Tony. Like path guiding is nothing we came up with. Like it is actually a rendering technique which is uh, quite old. Like the first research papers about it was, was in the early 90s by um, Jensen and LaFortune. Like they both had an idea of, um, hey, um, there are paths which are hard to sample. Let's let's try to learn something. And we are here talking about an age where people were happy to be able to render the Cornell box, like which is a super simple box in a 64 times 64 image resolution. And the machines had about like 32 megabytes of RAM. So they try to figure out an algorithm which can store some information about uh, the light trans light transport in these super simple scenes and then reuses and yes it it worked and they were super happy but it was also like yes this it was just a huge amount of memory consumption and compute speed and so like the whole research area in rendering went more into let's let's try to figure out algorithmically other ways to make better sampling decisions, like bidirectional path tracing, metropolitan light transport, photon mapping, like all these algorithms which uh, try to just come up with other ways to make better sampling decisions. And 
around 2014. Um, years have passed. We have better compute, more compute, more memory. Um, there was a, a paper by Jirka Vorba who more, more or less resurrected the idea of path guiding. There have been some, some smaller works before, but this probably the work from Jirka Vorba was the one which really resurrected it and also showed it in, in more production content. And since then, just, just the whole idea of path guiding, I can learn something either through a pre-processing step or um, doing my rendering about the light transport, store it and reuse it, uh, came up again. And till then, more and more path guiding algorithms came up. And this actually brings us to the problem if you are a developer and you want to integrate path guiding. There is a, a huge amount of different papers, um, a lot from the scientific realm of rendering. So people tried it out on, on, on small subset of scenes. It works really nice in these scenes. Um, but the big question is, okay, if I want to have a production renderer, which of these huge varieties of um, different algorithms should I pick? And this is where Intel came up with the idea of, um, hey, let, let's make a library out of it. Like, like let's try to, to look, look at all these papers and pick the ones which are interesting and which are promising and try to, to extend them in a way so that they can be robust enough to be used in production rendering. Yeah, we, we have um, like two, two different papers which are the main contributions we implemented. One is a paper I did together with a student, um, Lucas Rupert, together, and we presented at SIGGRAPH uh, two years ago, which is called the Parallax-Aware Mixture Models for um, path guiding. And another one is by Thomas Müller, which is practical path guiding paper. And we, we took these two algorithms and, and integrated them into the library and tested them on a lot of um, production scenes. And because OpenPGL is now open source, we also hope that by adoptions of companies like Chaos and V-Ray, we also get a lot of feedback from the real production context and then also can really make it bulletproof so that we, we see all the problems people have in production and update uh, the library to make it way more robust. So the basic idea is that what Embry is for ray tracing in the professional rendering realm, OpenPGL hopefully will become for path guiding. And then little plug, Embry is our ray tracing library, which has won an Academy Award, which we like to talk about. So that's kind of a cool thing. We are also using Canvas. Oh, <laughs> there you go. So getting back to how V-Ray uh, supports OpenPGL, how is the OpenPGL library used uh, within V-Ray? Is there a certain thing, is there a switch I need to turn on to make it work? Um, what types of things should I expect to be supported uh, within V-Ray if I want to use the OpenPGL uh, library? Yeah, first of all, you have to you have to understand that Fury uh, is a very uh, has been around for uh, quite a while, for more more than twenty years, and and is is used by by all kinds of three D three D artists and designers all over the the world. So so the scenes that we that we have. And that that are usually rendered with V-Ray can can vary quite a bit, and over the years 
as well. Uh, V-Ray has accumulated an absurd amount of, of features. For the initial implementation, we chose to make it very simple, just a toggle. And we, we thought that a good place for that would be to connect it somehow to our already existing uh, light cache prepass, because as, as Sebastian mentioned, for path guiding, you have to do some training. You have to provide some training samples to the library, and then you learn the distribution of the light in the, in the scene. This is very similar to what our light cache um, prepass does. It chooses a lot of rays, traces a very, very long um, ray paths in the scene and gathers all kinds of lighting information. And then what we do is just take this information and pass it to OpenPGL as well. And that's how, that's how we train it. After that come, comes the harder part to do the actual rendering with and shading with uh, the path guiding. This affects basically the whole ray tracing code and the whole shading code. So you mentioned that it's a toggle. I guess it's, a, it's an experimental feature is my understanding within the latest release of Chaos V-Ray. Yeah, okay. So it's it's not something that is just kind of on by default, most likely. Uh, so it's something people need to go in, turn it on, and try it. But obviously, you probably don't get everything for free. There are probably things that I need to worry about if I'm trying to render something. So what are the things, as a user of this experimental feature, that I should be careful of? It helps only with certain types of noise. So the goal is basically to, to, to clean up the noise in the image faster, but it helps only with uh, certain types of noise. And that's, that is the kind of noise that comes from basically uh, global illumination, diffuse global illumination and glossy reflections. So that's where it can help. And it depends on, on your scene. You can have noise from various sources in the scenes. You can have, have noise from lights. You can have noise from materials, from material textures. You can have noise from motion blur and stuff like this. Mm, but yeah, one of the common, uh, of the common source of noise is uh, global illumination and, and reflection. So yeah, if you have a lot of that, this can happen, for example, in interior scenes or scenes with uh, a lot of occlusion. So where, where you have a lot of shadowed areas where light uh, has, uh, has difficulty reaching. So you, you can expect uh, good results there. But for the rest of the scenes, you might have, it might just add uh, some overhead and that's uh, that's why it's still disabled by default ideally yes ideally we would love to to enable it by default and have it always on but for the first ver version we decided to do it like this yeah in our content creation application from things like uh, 3ds max maya houdini uh, there are a lot of different places where v-ray could be exposed where is it exposed right now is it is it if i pick up any of these things it'll work or is there a certain place I need to go to go try out the latest V-Ray with OpenPGL support? So we, we just released it in the new update of uh, V-Ray for 3ds Max. And this is as, as usual, the first update, uh, the first release of the year. Soon, of course, it will be coming for, for the other integrations like Maya, Cinema, Houdini, 
and so on. Expect it everywhere in a few months. That's awesome. And, and then Sebastian, what types of new features or functionality should we expect from OpenPGL? Are we are we done with OpenPGL and we're happy? Um, or are there new features that we expect to come down the pipeline? You mentioned that we basically took algorithms from two papers and put them into OpenPGL. I guess what's next for you in OpenPGL? Yeah, so um, currently um, OpenPGL or OpenPGL is still in a beta phase. So we, we just started with, with uh, our journey. So um, probably end of the month, we plan to have, um, we, we leave beta phase and go to an 0.5 release. And this is like the basic start of, of doing things. Like we, so we offer uh, users to have a guiding library with guiding structures to guide like directional sampling decisions in volume and on surfaces. But we also have some plans to to extend it even further. Like currently, we can only guide directional decisions, but there there are also features like something called Russian roulette, which is stochastic path termination. So, because usually you would need to have paths with an infinite amount with an infinite length to be unbiased. So because light can bounce an infinite amount of time before it reaches your eye. So in theory, you would also try to trace infinite lengths of paths. But what you do in practice is you have some stochastic approach which which more or less gambles at every bounce if the path should be terminated or not. This is usually based on some heuristics which say, okay, if I bounce multiple times from a dark surface, I, I don't expect that a lot of light comes comes from, from these type of paths, so I terminate this path. Uh, unfortunately, this heuristic has no idea if, yes, we bounce multiple times on a dark surface, but in the end you hit the sun or a laser beam. And so this can still be an important uh, path, even if it bounces on multiple dark surfaces. And there, there is a technique called guided Russian roulette or a joint driven Russian roulette, um, which is one thing we want to also give support for, because this can really help you to keep important paths alive and terminate unimportant paths uh, early and this also increases the efficiency a lot and this is for example one way how you can make up for the overhead you get through OpenPGL with learning all all these distribution and representations in scenes where probably the light transport is not that complicated but you probably still want can gain speed back from making good Russian roulette decisions so um, Guided Russian Roulette is one of, of the next things we are currently working on and we hope to, to put it out in one of the next releases. And also now that V-Ray has support for OpenPGL, we also hope to get a lot of feedback from the users of V-Ray to see where are we good and what can we do better in OpenPGL. Also together with uh, the developers of V-Ray to, to figure out how can we work on the integration into a re renderers like V-Ray and how can we optimize this? So ideally that it's an always on solution. And one question I'm sure people are wondering about is GPU support. So traditionally offline rendering has mostly been done on CPUs and CPU farms, which may be counterintuitive to some, but we're seeing that change a bit. Are there particular aspects of OpenPGL that lend itself to running on a GPU? 
so the, the plan is to make a GPU port and to um, to support GPU rendering, especially since more and more renderers are actually moving, or at least to support also some sort of GPU rendering. Sometimes, like if you have smaller scenes or you just want to make look dev, then you then it's nice to have a GPU which is faster in rendering, and then you take the whole scene with all the complexity and throw it on on a big CPU farm uh, to do the, the final calculations. So this is also why we want to support um, GPU rendering. And yeah, like the current idea is why we stick to the CPU was that it's easier to, to debug and work on all these algorithms and to figure out first, okay, if, if people from the professional rendering area on which are mainly CPU based are happy with the library, then we found a way and an algorithm which is worth porting to the GPU. Instead of trying to do both at the same time, you usually have the problem that programming on a GPU is pretty much different than programming on a CPU. Debugging is way harder, and you you, you would start trying to cuff yourself uh, to to this other um, other ecosystem and you might not ex try to explore everything you want. So yeah, that, you might lose a lot of time yeah, dealing with with the GPU-specific uh, problems. Yeah, and that's one of the, the nice things that one API tries to target by allowing us to program once and debug it on a CPU and then eventually target a GPU to actually do the work. And on that note, I think that probably ends our time for today. I'd like to thank Dion for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks to Sebastian as well. Yeah, thank you, Tony, for inviting us. It was nice talking to you. And thank you, our listener, for joining us. And if you're interested, we actually have a little segment after the music ends where we talk a little bit about how development and work actually gets done to Intel and Chaos sometimes. By the way, thanks to to Sebastian. Spe special thanks for helping helping me with the integration. For sure, it, we wouldn't be able to to ship it uh, this soon for for this release if if it wasn't for his help. It actually was a, a really interesting thing how how we did it. I, I don't know, Dean. You would probably want to tell a little bit about about the Randathon, like what what you have every year at at Chaos. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so. At Chaos, uh, each year we have uh, this kind of event called uh, Rendaton, where um, where people from all all of our offices around the world can can uh, participate, and we can develop together um, various various interesting topics and work together on some interesting ideas. And this time we had, uh, last year we had uh, colleagues from uh, Bulgaria, from Czech Republic and from uh, Germany, from all of the, those offices gathered in, in Prague. And we worked on maybe 12 or 15 topics, something like this. We, we split into, into teams of a couple of people, people and yeah, just work work all day for uh, three days straight. And uh, yeah, 
see see what we, we what we come up with and yeah me and uh, sebastian and a couple of other guys worked on the initial prototype of uh, integrating OpenPGL in in the array um, i had to do some preparation because it's very easy to to mess up um, to to mess up the calculations there and if you don't get them right you cannot present anything you you cannot do uh, meaningful comparisons yeah it, it it was a lot of pressure actually to to implement the prototype but it all worked out in the end and the results uh, looked looked very promising so that's why why we wanted to to try and bring the the feature to the users as, as soon as possible it was an interesting event it was a really intensive uh, three days of sitting together with dean and some of his colleagues and um, getting everything done but interestingly the poc was done after three days and um, one one or one and a half months later suddenly Dean pinged us and said, hey, we will have an experimental feature actually in the next release. And this was pretty good work to continue uh, doing that. And so we are lo looking forward about the result and how the community actually will receive it and react to it. Awesome. And I think our, our developer listeners will really appreciate that. I, at Intel, we used to call those, I guess in some cases, we would call them dungeons where we just locked everybody in a room until some work got done. <laughs> 